Welcome to Genius Leadership Overcoming Everything podcast. I'm your host, Anna Liebel, a mind shifter, helping male leaders in tech get out of the firefighter mode, become the proactive leaders they want to be, and enjoy the ride as they go. Join me every week for honest, insightful conversations with corporate, entrepreneurial, and academic leaders about their rollercoaster ride to leading from their zone of genius. If you find the show valuable, could you do me a favor? Rate and review the podcast. Share it with your network so that more of us can live a healthier and happier life. And for now, let's take the ride together. Hey, Genius Leader, welcome to another Best of the Best episodes. Today, we're going to listen to Jan Magislason, one of the top downloaded episodes in the year history of the show. With Yanmar, we talk about him growing as an entrepreneur, going through founding five companies at the moment, and how his focus has changed from leading and, and solving problems, technical problems, to leading people and finding people solutions. And his journey with having a coach on board and what kind of difference it makes for him, the executive team, and every employee on the board of grid their company hope you enjoyed this episode even if you listen to it please re-listen because he's sharing a lot of insights and i'm sure that since the episode has been released in early uh, january last or this year you have grown yourself and you will see and hear this conversation from a different angle and from a different level so enjoy and as always see you on the other side yalmar Warmest, warmest welcome to Genius Leadership Podcast. I want to directly hop into the topic as we discussed. I've done the introduction already and explained what you do at GRID. And now I want to discuss in detail how you actually do those great things that you're doing. So first question would be, what is leadership for you? A lot of things can be leadership. And I think that in the end of the day, pretty much all of us that are working as a part of some sort of a team are leaders in one way or another. Obviously, some are both more formal leaders and some are more natural leaders than others. But it is something that everybody has to think about when, they are, when they're working as a, as a group. And oftentimes, actually, some of the best leaders, they don't even realize that they are leaders or aren't formal leaders. They just, people are naturally drawn to them and kind of how they articulate and how they motivate people and, and so on. So I think that, yeah, leadership is a very wide and open space. When it comes to kind of more formal leadership, it is all about, I've gradually come to kind of understand that whatever you're trying to do in, in business or in life has mostly to do with the people that you get on board and not only the people, but also how well they work together, how well they are motivated and so on. And pretty much every problem you have or everything that anything that you need to tackle is a people thing. So most solutions are also people solutions. So I've gravitated very much from being a product business for pretty much my whole life. I've very much gravitated from kind of the product being the first and foremost thing to the team being the first and foremost thing. And then actually, I mean, there are many, many styles of, of leadership, but I try to act and kind of try to be as much a part of the team as I can and get people to buy into the vision that we have and that we're working towards and actually try to form that vision together with people and then get them to kind of work together and want to go where we're going rather than kind of trying to come up with ways to explain 
shall we say, downwards in a hierarchical manner. Like these are the things that need to be done and this is what each and every one of you should be doing. So maybe the strange answer to what is leadership is good leadership is great teamwork. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. And you said about that for you as a leader nowadays, it's important to be as much part of the team as possible. So Mm -hmm. how does that work? I mean, you are running a company that is now 20 people and keeps growing. You have a lot of responsibilities on your table. What does it mean on a daily basis to be part of the team? Yeah, I know it's a great question. It's something that I'm learning every day. And I sometimes feel that I actually, (laughs) I feel and I'm trying to be more kind of a a part of the team than especially the new people in the organization feel like they will take a casual conversation about something more as direction than as a brainstorm or as something where I'm actually kind of approaching the, the conversation on a, on a peer level, but they see it kind of, they are, you know, in their mind, they feel that there is a, a hierarchy in place. And that is actually something that I'm just learning to navigate, especially because we've grown quite a lot recently. How to properly kind of earn that trust and earn people's confidence in, in that an idea from me is just an idea and that needs to be kind of scrutinized and, and should be looked at as an idea coming from everyone else. And then we have a, a structure in place to actually filter out the ideas and prioritize the things that we're working on, which is not, I decide the priority, which, but it's, first of all, much more organized than that. And secondly, it has input from a lot more people than, than just me. So that is, that's that. Then also, I mean, a big part of it is just being approachable, making sure that you are, I think actually empathy is a big part of it to make sure that those kind of human connections are are there as well. And you connect to people on a a personal level. That just makes everything else so much easier. So basically what you're talking about partly is there is no prestige that you are the founder and the CEO. Thus, people should not come to you with this and that question, or you can't have this, this and that discussion. Yeah, I think that honestly, if it came to that, we just were in a deadlock and we couldn't come to a conclusion, then it would be on me. And I think everybody would understand that it would be on me to kind of cut that knot. That hasn't happened yet, I think, (laughs) in the history of the company, because we've just managed to kind of come to conclusions and kind of steering things more through having a common vision and then talking through what are the priorities and what are the tasks that, you know, help us get towards that vision fastest more than, okay, tell me what to do and kind of you organize this. It's very interesting. I'm now reflecting while you're talking about the culture in Sweden, at least, Mm -hmm. about the consensus on how important it is that everyone is on board and so on. And I've seen it many times that it actually goes overboard. Yes. People are really indecisive because someone, one person out of 30 is not on board. That's why we need to take another round of meetings, discuss it again, and so on and so forth. So why do you draw the line between being a part of the team member and being the decision maker? <laughs> because you are responsible for everyone's salary and the product and yeah. you have so much on your plate. Absolutely. So it's actually, it's a, this is reflecting very well back on, on my previous experience. I used to work in the States, but for a company, I was Swedish by origin and I was quite a lot of Swedish leadership there as well. And all the Americans, they had learned to say consensus and sing it a little bit like you would do. And that meant a totally different thing than just the words consensus. Uh, that was kind of the sweetest consensus that you're, you're talking about, where you take a very long time in making sure that everybody is in total agreement on everything. I think that 
It is hard to find that middle ground, but it has to be there. And I think that as long as there are no politics involved, as long as everybody is sincere in their, their motivations, people will accept the outcome. So we talk about it here, and I, I was actually super proud when I heard uh, this from somebody that I've been working with for a long time, is that the atmosphere both here at Grid and where we were working together previously at, at Data Market was that it wasn't about being right. It wasn't about who was right. It was about what was right. So people were just willing to come to, like, let's approach this, no matter kind of who is putting what on the table, let's discuss it and come to a conclusion on what is right, but not kind of go by any single person's direction and so on. So it's about kind of, you know, seeking the truth rather than kind of what is right. And I think that, again, even if, you know, you come to a conclusion that someone on the team is not fully aligned with, as long as they trust that the group came to that conclusion with the best intentions, then I think that that's much easier to accept. I really like the concept. I think probably Amazon has formalized this more than, than most companies, but you probably heard about kind of Jeff Bezos's approach where it is like if there is a disagreement in the group, there is still a requirement that you commit to it. So I think the phrase is disagree, but commit. Mm -hmm. So you disagree, but you understand that the outcome was not kind of your, your way or some other way. And then you have to commit to actually try to make that way that was decided on as successful as possible, even though it wasn't your idea. Because otherwise you start creating these weird incentives where you're looking forward to six months down the line to the moment where you can say, I told you so, and that's mm. not happening. I think there is so much that actually is required to get to that point where everyone can be committed, even if it's not their idea. And also what you're talking about, that to not take things personally on a personal level, we're talking about things here and our decisions. We're not talking about who is right. We're talking about what is right. And Talking about how to get there, I really would like to walk our listeners through the, your journey with Grid and actually start with way before Grid. So before <laughs> you started or decided which product you're going to work on. So yeah. can you tell us a bit more about that stage? Yeah. So I've been an entrepreneur more or less my whole life. Uh, Grid is the fifth company I started as a founder. And my last startup was sold to a larger organization in 2014. And I think that, you know, I knew and I think also everybody around me, even the people that bought the company, they realized that, you know, eventually I would leave and want to start something new. And I was certainly aware of that. I enjoyed the first couple of years and kind of wasn't even thinking about what to do next, even though kind of was lingering in my mind that I would at some point. So as the mind started to wonder about what to do next, I actually started kind of just writing down a fairly avid note taker. So every single day I write down most of the things that happened that day. And if I feel there were some interesting learnings or interesting things, or obviously any items that need to be addressed, I try to kind of write those down as well. And I started aggregating some of my kind of lessons learned from the, the last, I guess, 10 years or so that I, you know, just browsing through these notes and started aggregating them and kind of decided to focus on, okay, Regardless of what I want to do, so I had several ideas. I think there were three main competing ideas about kind of what I wanted my next startup to be. But before deciding on any of those, so first of all, why do I want to do this? What's the motivation and kind of what do I want to get, get out of it? And then secondly, how do I want to build up the company or build out the team regardless of what it is doing? So just remove, let's remove the topic or the subject that we're going to be focusing on 
and just talk about, okay, what does this yet unnamed and a company that doesn't yet even have a mission, what does it look like apart from that? And I wrote a, what actually ended up being, I ended up printing a small booklet with, I guess you could call it a manifesto, but that's a little bit too kind of strong of a, of a word. But it was like, here are some lessons and here is what I take away with me from those lessons. And it was mainly about anything from atmosphere and culture and you know, ways of working to your processes and tools and so on. But you should have then be able to take that and apply it to pretty much anything that I would be doing, that a company would be doing with some parameters. I was thinking about a software company. That's, you know, all my companies have been software companies. And it was probably going to be a subscription business of some sort, but even that didn't matter so much. Software alone, and you could probably have taken that little booklet and applied it to any sort of software company. Mm. So can you give us examples of what was in that booklet? You said about the atmosphere. What did you write there about the atmosphere? Yeah, yeah. So I guess the number one thing is what I've since learned is called psychological safety, creating an atmosphere where everybody feels safe to surface ideas, ask questions, even if they may think that it may be stupid questions or stupid ideas. That's an atmosphere that is very valuable. Also an atmosphere where problems actually are surfaced rather than lingering kind of somewhere in the depths of the company and you know only surfacing when the problem has become too big to, or at least a lot harder to address than if you learn about it early on. And where... People actually feel proud of what they are working on and the team that they are a part of. So all of these things are very related. And they are also all things that you cannot just decide to have them. Like they are the outcome of something you create rather than something that you create on its own. That's kind of what a lot of the focus has has been on. It's been on kind of creating that atmosphere and also just getting everybody to buy in to that building such an atmosphere and such a culture is a good thing. So those are some of the things. So the ways this is manifested here, we pretty early on created a working agreement. So the team, I think we were seven at the time, we came together and we kind of decided on what ended up being five sentences that we wanted to be true at all times. And we wanted to be able to look at them and say, does this sentence still hold true? And they're actually here in a pretty prominent place in the office. I'm looking at them right now. So. For example, the number one is we are proud of what we do. And then this actually helps not only, if you use that sentence as an example, this helps not only with checking in every now and then and seeing, are we still proud of what we do? It actually helps with decision making. So if we have two ways of doing something, then would we be proud of decision A? Would we be proud of decision B? If the answer to one of them is no, then we the choice is obvious. What if it comes like you have five statements there and one is answering one of the statements, mm-hmm. like one option, and option B goes into the other one? Yeah, there are probably scenarios. You could probably imagine scenarios where that would be the case. And it's like with everything, especially like language, it's, it, there's always some subjective. We have to look at it. There are some grayscales. You have to look at it with kind of some subjective thought in mind. and. I think that we would not have a terribly hard time coming to a conclusion on like how do we weigh these things and kind of which way does it go. At least what I think we could say for sure is that having these sentences would make sure that the discussion would be more thorough than if we didn't have them. 
Yeah. And brings you awareness to what matters and what actually should be discussed. I yeah. love it. I really love it. You mentioned a bit that it's your fifth company and the more experience you were getting, the more team, the heavier the team was actually in the decision-making or importance. So how did you come from, or like, why was it so that you first were focusing on the product mm-hmm. and got into valuing the team aspect so much more? Yeah. So I think experience is the short answer. But you know, I started my first company when I was 20 together with three other guys. We, well, three or four dropped out of university to start that company. At that time, we were driven by ideas about software that we wanted to create. And the passion was all about creating that software. And we were just working hard. We were young. We didn't have a lot of other commitments. And the natural thing to do was just to be at work 16 hours a day and trying to make this thing happen. You quickly learn, and some of us learn that lesson harder than others, that you know that's not sustainable. It sometimes takes a while to learn that lesson. And, and some people are learning that even kind of after 20, 25 years in the business. But that's kind of over time, gradually you realize that, you know, you cannot keep going at that pace. And then you have to find some, this is a, every startup is a marathon, not a sprint. So you have to have the stamina to actually finish to the goal line. And if you are sprinting, let's say you're running the 400 meters and then all of a sudden somebody tells you, oh, no, 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 this is a 10K race, then it'd be very hard to keep going. But that's very much what it looks like. And usually it's actually a longer run than you than you set out to do in the beginning. Then you start thinking more about the kind of balance and you could call it work-life balance or whatever. Crunches are fun. It can actually be a great fun to have a common goal. You want to get it done on a certain date with a deadline or in a short amount of time as possible. And that's great. Four weeks, six weeks, something like that. But if that's a perpetual state for a very long time, that's just not going to work and that's not going to lead to a good outcome. So basically, your experience has shown you that for you to be in the startup world in a healthy way for longer, Mm -hmm. you need a team. Yeah, you need a team and you need to think about the team as such, not just the the outcome. Like I said in the beginning, I've come to more, I guess I was going to say I've come to realize, but I've come to think at least that every problem is a human problem. So every solution is also a human solution. So you have to like, if you're not delivering the software or whatever you're trying to deliver, then that's not a technical problem or very rarely is. It's probably a problem uh, that has to do with the people. Maybe you don't have the right people. Maybe people aren't motivated in the right way. Maybe they are overloaded. Maybe they are stressed out about something that's happening at home. All of these things are super important and you have to take them all, factor them all in. So I think in some ways you could say, I'm still driven by the same outcome. I'm still driven by kind of trying to create the product or the, the solution. But I've just realized that the means to that end is to have a well-functioning team that has a common, well-understood goal and is willing to work there more, mostly self-motivated, but not kind of pushed by some external factors. Mm, I love it. It's really about uh, no one can do everything on their own. And it's important to understand that we, we have the passion and there are enough people in this world who, who will share our passion and want to get the same goal to create this solution, to create this problem together with you or to create the product to solve the problem together with you. So it's, it's good to understand that everyone wins <laughs> from right, right. getting together. Yeah. 
I think it was a part of the writing I did that led up to the start of Staffing Grid. But I can't characterize the job of a startup founder or startup CEO as kind of persisting of three things. So your role is to drive the vision. You don't have to own the vision, but you have to be the one driving it and kind of gathering the input and shaping it and then communicating it. So a very big part of it is communicating the vision back and making sure that even though people are hearing the same words and the same sentences, they actually get a similar picture in their mind because people can still have a very different idea about what it is, what the vision is, even though they agree on the words that describe it. Number two is nurturing the team. And that's what we've been talking about. And then number three, never run out of money. And if you just do these three, just do these three things well, you will be successful. And I use this framework. So I will tend to kind of rotate through these three things and say, am I doing enough to drive the vision? Am I doing enough to nurture the team? And then are we running out of money? If we are feeling good on all three, then I find the right thing to work on to move one of the three forwards. That's brilliant. That's really simplifying the things for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> again, it, it sounds like you're using a lot of inner compasses in a way. So the five space statements that are on the wall, these right. three questions for yourself. So you're just having all those kind of checkpoints that make it easier for you on a daily basis to run the business and to keep moving forward. Yeah, that's as you say it, I'm, I'm realizing that is true. What I've found though, and I could also mention we have, you know, five sets of product principles that we are working with as well. So each of them is then broken down into a few more. And then we actually worked those out as a team earlier this year. It was that we wrote them down. The reason for that and kind of where that came from is that we realized that we already had inherently built some principles in place, but we just hadn't written them down. And just by capturing them and writing them down, we are able to much more easily show new people how we work. And it's much easier to, again, when it comes to a decision, we can point to, this is what we wrote down as a principle. It's not forbidden to break the principle, but you have to have a pretty good reason for it. So maybe that means that the principle needs to evolve or there are some exceptions or something that you could then capture as well. So it is very helpful to write these things down. And usually you are not making them up Usually you are just trying to capture something that's already in your head or in the, in the team's kind of psyche. Mm. So talking about that team psyche and your head as well, you written down that booklet or manifesto before starting Grit, and now Grit is a bit over two years old. So mm. has anything from what you've written down changed, evolved, maybe you got, got crossed out on the way? The short answer is, no, I haven't gone back and changed anything. But if I would, I certainly, if I went back to it, I certainly would. There are certainly things that I've learned. There are certainly things that have evolved since. I can, for example, point to meeting cultures. So uh, one of the things I wrote down in the booklet was that we would try to keep meetings at an absolute minimum. I think I even called it like, no, we want to be a no meeting culture, with the exception of having kind of one weekly meeting where you know the teams are aligning. Definitely not the case, but I still think that we are keeping meetings to a minimum and all the meetings we have have a set purpose and they have like there's a reason it's there. The team agrees to a varying degree, obviously, on the importance of the meetings that are are being had. But we are regularly going back and and looking at especially meetings that that are scheduled on a regular interval is are we meeting the purpose that we set out for this meeting? Is it still valid? Is it too long? Should we even kind of cancel it? Should we do it kind of every four weeks instead of every two weeks and so on? 
And what still rings true also is that we try to facilitate in the moment conversations rather than kind of scheduled meetings. It's a little bit harder in, in COVID when people are working remotely. But when you have people together in an office, the environment that you want to create is definitely not one of where everybody's interrupting everybody else all the time. But when you kind of happen to be kind of going to lunch together, you grab the opportunity to say, hey, can we talk about this thing here? How are we going to implement this feature or how we should approach that ad campaign or something like that? Because it's those interactions. And it's definitely something we feel Again, now, when we don't have that, because we have built a culture that relies quite heavily on us being in the same office, that was actually one of the things that I wrote in that manifesto, is that I wanted people to be physically located in, in a single location and mostly in the office while working. People are building great, fully remote companies, but that's just very different. And I think that all other things being equal, I think that a company that is co-located in a single office will probably always win over a remote company. What you get with remote is you can tap into, a, obviously, a talent pool from all over the world, and there are other things you, you get there. But this is something that we built for. So in some ways, COVID and the shift to largely remote work had some effects on us. But the fact that we had gotten to know each other so well and we had a fairly well-established work system meant that it was a lot easier than if we started fully remote in that sense. So. I still believe in the office and in the kind of physical presence of each other. And uh, I think that the world will go less to fully remote than, than many people think it will after COVID. Hey, Genius Leader, I'm chiming in here quickly to ask you to do one thing for me. If you're enjoying this episode, share it with one person who you think would find it valuable as well. Let's spread the goodness together so that more people can play within their zone of genius. That's interesting. I actually also wonder, do you think it depends on the culture and the country, whether the one-to-one or the remote or collocated is better? I'm just thinking in Iceland, it's easier to say collocated is better because the whole country is built on family-friendly infrastructure and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. But if you go to, I don't know, more US that you have background in, yeah. There, it might be more difficult to balance things in your life. Yeah. So, I mean, the one thing that, or, or there are several things that are, are different. I mean, one of them is obviously just, you know, the commute. So in places where you have an hour's commute each way, that's a lot of cost to pay for, for getting into the office. And here it's relatively short, despite some people complaining about the traffic, they haven't seen traffic. <laughs> so. So that's one thing. The culture also, uh, yes, but I wouldn't necessarily think that Icelanders as a culture are, are special in that. I think it's more about like the culture you build. So meaning that I think you could build, if you get together a good team, in my opinion, I think it will always benefit from being able to be in the same physical location and sharing a lot of face time with each other. Now, you know, can you compensate for that with partly remote and coming together in the office once a week or, you know, having larger offsites a couple of times a year or something like that? Absolutely. But again, like I said before, if you compare one to the other, I think that being able to have these osmosis and this height connection, especially early days, especially when the team is small. And that's actually another thing that we're passing right now. We're kind of, we're going over the 20 employee mark and I've seen it before and I've seen it in other companies. 
that is the time when you kind of stops being true that everybody knows about everything that's going on in the organization. And then you start seeing, oh, we need we need a little bit more structure around things. We need to kind of think a little bit more about the processes and the work systems and so on. And that is a, a fairly fundamental shift. There are a few of these kind of fundamental shifts that happen. And one of them is somewhere around 20, where not everybody knows each other as well. Not everybody knows everything that's going on. You now have people with varying degree of kind of history within the, the organization. And some of the things that some of your assumptions will no longer ring true because people have just, they have a different level of kind of base understanding of what's going on. So how do you plan to tackle that? And question also, how did you tackle that in the first two years? Because there is also quite a difference, I can imagine, between being a team or a company of seven people and a company of 20 people. So how do you make sure that the culture that you have identified as the moving force is still lived through Mm -hmm. by everyone on the team? Yeah. So a few things. First of all, I think that if we talk about the practical things first, like the things that you kind of that you implement, we've been fairly careful in kind of having a structure that grows with us. So when there was only six or seven of us, it was just me and then everyone else. Like there was that was the hierarchy. Everybody reported to me and, you know, the one on one relationships and so on were all between me and other people. And there was a lot of just we were mostly sitting in the same room. So everybody heard most of the conversations that were going on, at least if they wanted to hear them and so on. So there was a lot of that. Then we have kind of gradually put more structure in place. So now there are organized in, in a leadership team and then three teams that they're under. That's roughly enough for that scale. So now we have, there are three people. Well, there are, yeah, there are four people in the organization that are managers that, you know, somebody reports to. And therefore you start distributing the one on one relationships and the uh, organization of the work. And we've also been implementing more and more systems. When there was just initially for the first month, there were just two of us. And then the level of organization was just something that was written on five or six lines with checkboxes in front of them on, on a whiteboard that we could both see at all times. And then you start moving into ticketing systems. And then you like, we just two months ago, we implemented a single task system for the entire company. So that means so. In the, in the engineering organization, you would re- usually refer to these as the ticketing system. They tend to be very kind of engineering focused, something like GitHub or, or Jira or something Jira. like that. Yeah, where kind of that is well suited for engineering tasks, but is not only <laughs> not well suited, but also just intimidating to people that tend to be more kind of on the go to market side of, of the house. Where people, like if we just talk specifically about tools where people kind of gravitate towards tools like Asana and, and so on. So we managed to kind of get everybody on board with a very kind of participatory process of selecting a new tool and kind of weighing the pros and cons of, of all of this. But there was a strong buy-in that we wanted to have a single tool. And we have started to see, I mean, I'm not going to say it's utopia, it's not perfect. But the benefits of having everybody working in one system where you then have a hierarchy where you can prioritize things and it feeds off that kind of prioritized hierarchy, you are feeding both engineering tasks and go-to-market tasks and all the tasks that have to happen. That creates a good visibility and a good alignment between the work across the organization. So that's another example. So we have evolved the structure, kind of the, the reporting structure and kind of the, as you could say, the org chart and the tools and the processes. And try to, I think we've never over-engineered a process. Like, I think we are, 
we've managed to be maybe just slightly ahead of the curve and kind of implementing new things and kind of taking up new ways of, of working. And we haven't fallen terribly far behind either. Both of them can be bad. Yeah. So that it's not only about the communication itself, but also the processes, as you say, yeah. the structures and the tools. But talking about the team and the discussions, it sounds like you are discussing a lot. So it's, as you said, what I hear that when you take the decision about the tool, the new tool to implement, it's everyone in the, com- in the company who is taking active part in that discussion. Mm-hmm. Has it um, ever been a heated discussion? And not talking about this tool particularly, but any kind of discussion in the company. Yeah, yeah we debate for sure, but it very rarely becomes personal. I'm not going to say it hasn't happened. And in those cases where it has happened, we have, I think I can say I trust with a, I have a high degree of trust in that those things happen surfaced when they have happened. And then we've tackled those then kind of head on instead of having them simmer somewhere and and become a, a larger problem. And we definitely debate things. One of the ways that things tend to happen now, and I can point to a few projects, the new tool or the task management system and selection of that. And actually the implementation of that is an example where The whole company bought into the need to do this. And then we assigned a smaller team to kind of go to actually have the, you know, to do the selection process. And then we, out of that, so everybody can follow the process. Everybody can chime in if they want to, but that team is kind of, is responsible for the selection and then the implementation. So nobody is excluded, but also not everybody's input is absolutely required in the process. And we make sure that that core team just represents the stakeholders, which typically kind of have are across the organization. I see. That's great. So you brought in a coach yes. from the very start of Grid. Can you talk yep. a bit more about that decision? Why and how and your learnings from the process? Yeah. So I think a younger self, so a Helmer from 10 years ago, would have been shocked to learn that 2020 Helmer is, is actually has a, has a coach and uh, loves it. So it, it kind of all came out of this preparation where the focus was quite a lot on the culture and the people and the realization that whatever you want to do, you have to have a, not just a well-functioning, but a super well-organized and motivated team. I had never had a coach myself before, so that was new to me. But the need or the idea initially came from, okay, we are a team. So let's get in somebody that is a team coach and can help us kind of align as a team how we can make sure, again, that problems are surfaced, that we tackle them head on, that we have the psychological safety, kind of all of those things. That's when we started talking to the coach that we're still working with today. He helped us early on with some of the, for example, I think that the very first thing that we worked with him on was the working agreement. So this was four four months in or so into the formation of the company. And he was working with us in occasional capacity to begin with for those types of things, helping us with processes, helping us with things like the working agreement, but also just helping us to get to know each other and kind of, you know, why that's important and how that all works. And then we started offering, as the team grew, we started offering, I guess, first the team, the, the kind of, we started forming, a, so we, we broke into two teams. And then we had team alignments when we formed them. And we've actually more or less had team alignments again when we've changed the structure of any team. So, for example, when a new person joins a team, we will make sure that we do a little bit of a realignment on that. So it's been on the team level quite a lot. But then two things happen. First of all, 
we started experimenting with offering people individual coaching as well, which is then obviously totally confidential and just kind of one-on-one relationship between the coach and the person. And that turned out to be something that a lot of the team members liked and uh, you know felt helped them in uh, you know both their professional and to some degree also in their personal lives. And then as we formed a, I guess you could call it an executive team or a management team, which is the four of us that are kind of in the management positions, then we also got them to kind of help with that team, like, you know, how, which is a little bit different from the other teams. Mm-hmm. So he's now helping us as an executive coach. So, well, almost on four levels, as an executive coach, one-on-one with the executives, as a team coach of the executive team, as a team coach of the teams, which is more occasional, that's when there's a change in the team. And then on a, you know, everybody in the company can opt in to kind of have one-on-one coaching for as long and for whatever, for coaching on whatever subject they, they would like. And, and people then, are using that? Yeah. So I think pretty much everybody has tried it for you know, at least a few sessions. Some of us have stuck with it for a longer period of time. So actually... The way I use the coaching now is that I've gone through kind of periods where it's been more or less a weekly thing. Then I, right now, it's more like we have the occasional meeting, but then if there's something that I really feel we need to work on. So for example, the transition of being a leader of a 12-person team to kind of being the leader of a 20-person team, I realized that my job was going to change a lot. The biggest change being that hardly anything is done by me anymore, meaning, you know, I'm not hands-on working. There are only a handful of things that I'm hands-on working on. I'm trying to make myself redundant in a lot of everyday work, training other people to kind of take on those responsibilities and so on. And I that was something we focused on for probably two months. Like, okay, what does the outcome look like? And how do I get from what's been very effective at the kind of 12-ish size to what we believe will be effective at the size of 20. And that's something that will continue because we will continue to grow. And the role, even though we have the same title, the uh, job changes every few months. Yeah, that's the fascinating and the tough part of being the the CEO and the founder, I suppose. Yeah, well, it's mostly just fun. (laughs) That's great to hear. So why did you actually come up with the idea of using the coach for the one-to-one sessions as well? I actually think maybe it was his idea to offer that. And yeah, it was. So we were just, you know, we were thinking about kind of how do we, so this was working really well for the teams and kind of how do we evolve this relationship of, of working together? And this was one of the ideas that came up and we decided to try it and it worked well. And then new people have been coming in and there's just enough to focus on. Mm-hmm. Today we are, we've gone from occasionally working together to working together for one day a week. So he's here for one day a week to two days a week when we were going through a hiring period in the in the late summer and, and early autumn to now one and a half days fixed. And that's the current level. And I think the, the need will only grow over time, but it's also, there's a little bit of kind of expansion and contraction based on what's going on. Actually, the coaches are a part of our hiring process as well. So one of the interviews we do is what we call the culture interview, which is, the coaches are part of that interview together with our COO or VP of operations. They are working through how we work, but also trying to kind of gauge how do we think this person will fit into the, the culture and the ways we work here. And as we discussed with you the first time we hopped on the call, it happens that you actually make mistakes there, right? Yep. When yes. With the hiring. So could you talk about that part of 
being a leader? How what yeah. do you do with people when they don't perform or don't fit in the culture? Yeah. So I think I've learned quite a lot there. I guess the first thing I would say is that we implemented a much more rigorous hiring process when we realized that in some cases we had not hired the right people. So we didn't really have a hiring pro when we were just, you know, a small team, a handful of people. We didn't have a hiring process. It was like we had a couple of meetings. We liked the people. We made them an offer and they would come on board. Mostly these were super well aligned and they were mostly from within our network. There, were a part, there was a little bit of kind of, we were trying to hire out of network, but Iceland is small and there are always some connections that can help a lot with the, with the trust and knowing that you are hiring the right people. But we still made mistakes and that led us to implementing a probably a more rigorous hiring process than most companies of our size would have. And we actually, I really like it when we hear from people that participate in that process, especially those that don't end up getting hired, but they had a positive experience throughout the interviewing and, and hiring process. And we try to make that true for everybody that applies here. The other thing that I would say is that I always look at me first, or as us as leaders first, if we have to let someone go. It is our mistake. Either we hired the wrong people, or we didn't create the environment that made them successful in their role. Most people are good people, but they may not be a good fit for the role or the company or the team that they are on. That's usually kind of the, the mismatch that happens. So I try to kind of always look first internally and say, what could I have done better? What could we have done better? rather than focusing on why that person wasn't like, what's wrong with them? It's more what's wrong with us. But then sometimes you have to make hard decisions and usually you actually, it takes too long. I mean, I somewhat read kind of, it's a fairly ruthless statement, but if you have doubts that somebody is right for the team, you've more or less made up your mind about letting them go. And mm -hmm. that is more true than you probably admit at first. Like mm -hmm. it's actually at least a lot more common that you think that you can kind of somehow fix someone within the organization and it doesn't happen. And it is that you think you can fix someone and they're actually fixed. When I say fixed, like it's that much. Again, it's not kind of about something being wrong with them. It's about not being the right fit. I have seen it happen. But in those cases, what was going on? So I can recall two incidents where performance issues or some issues with somebody's work. And when you dug into it, kind of you realize that there was something going on in their personal life that was in their way of being effective or being productive in their work. And in that case, you know, that is, that's very different. Like once you know that, and that's one of the reasons it's so important to know the people you're working with on a personal level. Once you know that, you can tackle that in a very different way than if you just see kind of the output and that's not sufficient. Hmm. How do you find the balance there between knowing your employees on the personal level and going too much into personal relationships with them. Yeah, I, <laughs> I've thought about this a little bit recently. So I look at pretty much everybody I work with, and especially people I work with on a kind of daily basis. They just become your friends. It's a natural thing to happen. But then you have this weird thing that you are kind of somebody's friend and their boss, and you're having conversations, and sometimes it's not entirely clear which one it is. Like I said before, luckily, we don't have a culture where it's a lot about kind of me telling others what to do. But it's still, I mean, that hierarchy is there for sure. One of the things, and actually, this is something that I came to a conclusion with the coach on. I mean, it sounds weird, but kind of you sometimes use this expression, I'm now going to put my something hat on and I'm going to put my... When I think that that's going to be 
helpful to the conversation. I usually kind of approach a conversation as we are just, we're teammates, we're friends, we are kind of peers. But, you know, then occasionally kind of making sure that I'm putting my friend hat on or I'm putting my CEO hat on. And I, I will just, you know, I'll just say that. I'm going to put my friend hat on for a little while. You should take time off or like, <laughs> or even kind of put the boss hat on and say, you should take time off. Mm. <laughs> that, that can be very different. It sounds corny, but it actually can be helpful. If we roll back to what we just discussed before this question about people who are not performing, and you mentioned that quite often it's going way too long and we yeah. are not taking a decision as leaders for longer than we should not, we should. So how would you suggest people address that when they have those doubts, when they see the person not performing and they know it's not personal and it's, yeah. it's just not a match and it's not a very temporary thing? My thinking on this is evolving, but where it is at now is that this is not about like somebody once handing in a sloppy work or, or something like that. It's like when, once you've realized, hey, there's a pattern here, there's been a period of weeks where you know, you're not performing properly, then approach people, tell them like in a one-on-one -on -one situation, kind of tell them and try to give them very direct feedback, including examples of you know, where, you know, what wasn't good enough and, and how it could have been bettered. And then saying, I want to work with you on improving this. You have to help me surface the things that will help, where we can help make you effective in this job. And then I don't know exactly how explicit you want to make that. But in your mind, at least, you just say, this is a two-month thing or this is a three-month thing. And then you should have at that time, on when those two months are over, you should just put in your calendar. Now there's a, it's decision time. Like either they're fixed and you don't have to have them on doesn't have to be a formal program, but you don't, they're not on the program anymore or they have to go. And I think it's just, I mean, first of all, it's fair towards the people. Like you shouldn't just fire somebody up on, there can be so many things going on. Like we said before, sometimes it can be something in, in their personal life that they just need time or they need a little room to deal with that. But you shouldn't either, you're not making, doing anyone a favor by keeping them maybe not happy, maybe not effective in a role for a long time. In my experience, I've actually more often had a conversation after the fact with people that are no longer working with me, but they kind of, they have come and said, I think this was the right thing. I think I was better off after, and I understand why this happened, than I've had people mad at me long after the fact. We, we can't be loved by everyone anyways, and you as a founder have the most responsibility for the company as a whole. And unfortunately, that sometimes means that one part of the whole has to go. Yeah, yeah. Can be uh, tough. There is one very helpful visualization that a mentor of mine kind of talked me through recently that I think is very helpful when you're talking when you're thinking about people. So, if you think about kind of the two dimensions, so people's character on one dimension and people's competence on the other, you should know that you can move them on the competence access so you can make them more competent but it's very hard to move people on the character axis so when you know what sort of character people are they're probably going to stay there you cannot change people's character but you can you know make them more effective you can train them you can make them more competent and i felt that was once i heard it i felt oh this is actually very helpful like the thing you know looking at somebody's situation and thinking can i help them or can we help each other become effective here Depends a little bit on what it is that is wrong. 
I would probably argue here a bit because it probably depends on the definition of character because some people can be very irritating or irritated and impatient and so on. But like I work with the personal development and self-leadership a lot. Even if I come into the corporate environment and I work with leaders or helping them lead the team, quite mm-hmm. often it comes down to leading yourself first of all. So that kind of work actually affects your character in many ways or how you're perceived as a person. So in a way, from that point of view, you can move people on their character axis. Or their- uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. And I would agree with that. And what I would say there is that, in my opinion, you should not have to adapt to the character of your coworkers. Like if you are, like if somebody is really grumpy, then the solution should not be that everybody around them starts kind of going very kind of gently and not raising issues and, and so on. But you can work with them on understanding that, hey, the perception of you is that, hey, you're, you're grumpy and scary, just so that you know. And, and sometimes people don't even know. And then when they know that, then there's a possibility if they're if they're open to it, that they can learn to kind of put some... I don't necessarily think that would be changing their character, but it's changing the way they, yeah, they, they treat their own character in some ways or, or display their character is probably the better way of saying it. Yeah, I agree. I would come back. I would like to come back to the coach question or discussion yep. one, with one more question. So you have investors and you recently had a successful round, right? Mm-hmm. And... I could imagine that you are being watched on the financial part. That's one of those three pillars that you as a CEO look at all the time. So how could you justify having a coach in-house to the Uh, investors? That is not a problem at all. So the two biggest investors we have, which were the lead investor in our our seed round just over a year and a half ago, and then in the uh, Series A round that we did this summer, both of them uh, were totally bought into beforehand that it is all about the team. Actually, the, usually, especially for early stage companies, team is the first thing that people look at, the investors look at. They look at the people and say, can this group of people pull off what they are, what they're talking about? And then they start looking at other things like what's the thesis, how big is the market and, and so on. So team, I think for every investor team is kind of top of mind. Furthermore, I think there's more and more realization that companies that invest in culture and the team and kind of making sure not necessarily paying the highest salaries, but giving people a great environment to work in and kind of make, removing all obstacles for them to be effective in the job are and tend to be become the, the best companies. So in our case, you know, Blue Yard out of Berlin and NEA out of, out of San Francisco were both kind of really bought into this already. And I think that, you know, we already had the team coach when we were talking to, well, we'd only started working with them even when we had the seat, raised the seat round. And in both cases, that was just a plus. That was not seen as like a negative, you're spending money on this. It's like, well, that's a positive. They understand how important that is. There are many more, I think, all of the best investment funds are are thinking this way. I've been invited to a couple of investor conferences by investors that didn't end up investing in grid that have all been about leadership and about teams and about kind of culture rarely invited to an investor event on technology, sometimes on Mm -hmm. market stuff, but rarely on on kind of the tech side. And most of them seem to be thinking a lot about teams and team coaching and culture these days and diversity and inclusion being a part of that. That's great. It's great to see this shift happening on different levels and by different stakeholders. Yeah. That everyone can be on the same journey. Last question, Yalmar. Three pieces of advice to our listeners about how to 
lead from their zone of genius. Mm-hmm. Uh, now you're putting me in the spot. So, well, I would say team first is probably the first one. So we've been talking about this for more or less the last hour. Like think about how you can achieve your goals by empowering and motivating the team that you have rather, you know, more than anything else. That is the first mm-hmm. advice. The second advice I would give is you know, being approachable and, you know, being ready to, so you will know more as a leader of a startup company, you will know more. You, you will have thought more about the product you're building, the space you're in, the business and so on than anyone else on your team, even the people that are uh, on the team with you for, for the longest amount of time. So your input into decision making at whatever level it is, kind of strategic product, or go-to-market decisions down to kind of smaller design decisions. If somebody wants to seek your advice, try to make yourself available for those conversations because you are adding a lot more value by being there and being able to take that two-minute conversation that helps or guides someone towards what they are trying to achieve than you know spending those two minutes on writing that email or working directly on something. And I think that thirdly, the realization, especially I think that this takes a while for people to sink in when they have not been in that position before. But when you're starting the company, you are a very valuable. So the lesson would be realize that you will not be kind of a hands-on. You will not have a lot of time for hands-on work moving forward. Early on, you're a part of the team. You may be writing code. You may be writing copy. You may be deploying the website, You know all of those things. But then gradually over time, your life becomes about guiding and empowering others more than it is about doing things yourself and letting go of things in that sense and making sure that you have trained people well enough that they can run with things and realizing that sometimes if they do things differently and they don't do things as you would do them, they may actually just be different. They may not be wrong. So just being able to kind of let go of things over time is hard and you should be prepared for it. I love those tips. And actually, the third one I could take as another episode for another hour to discuss. I think there is so much in there. <laughs> How to yeah, learn. Yeah. Thank you so much, Alma, for this amazing hour. I'm pretty sure our audience will love it. And I'm looking forward to see how Grid is doing. And uh, when you finally launch the product, I'm going to be using that. And <laughs> it will be the first of the ambassadors. Yeah, great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that too. Thank you so much, Anna. And best of luck with your podcast. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Genius Leadership. If you enjoyed the conversation, hit the subscribe button to not miss an episode. And to help more people become even better leaders, rate and review our podcast and share it with your communities. For more conversations about living and leading from your zone of genius, connect with me on LinkedIn. Genius Leadership is an honest conversation about leading yourself and others. And it's my honor to be your guide in overcoming everything 